Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. Every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hi, I'm Chad Carr, partner at Hydrogen Struggles and member of Hydrogen Consulting. In today's podcast, I'm speaking to Lou Von Thayer, president and CEO of Battelle, a global research and development organization committed to science and technology for the greater good. Lou became president and CEO of Battelle in October of 2017. Through his innovative leadership, the company has continued to grow into what today is the world's largest independent nonprofit research and development organization with more than 30,000 employees. Lou, welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, thanks, Chad. It's great to be here. Lou, you've been the driving force of a complete culture transformation at Battelle. Can you help us understand how and why your mission first journey began? Yeah, Chad, and, and if you'll bear with me, I think it's worth uh, going into a little bit of detail on this because I think it matters. Uh, this is the third turnaround I've been part of in my career, and they're all different, right? The, the, the people are different. The situations are never the same. But Battelle was, is a great organization, had a long history. Uh, this is our 92nd year, uh, and it had been a wonderful, innovative organization. It invented the Xerox machine, CD-ROMs, uh, lots of uh, things over, over its history. But it had kind of gotten into a period where it never recovered from the recession in 2008. It had gotten on a down note, and what had happened is it lost a lot of that mojo. You know, When I came in, what we really found was an organization that was doing primarily support services uh, for others' innovations instead of doing our own. It had kind of devolved. It was typically doing a lot of that work at less than what it costs. And as a result, the company was bleeding about $100 million a year. Uh, since that 2008 time, it had used up two-thirds of its equity. And if we'd continued on the same path, which, of course, we wouldn't have, but uh, would have probably been bankrupt about this time. Uh, you know, we had about three or four years left of running rates. So we knew we had to make some changes. And uh, that was part of why the board brought me in in the first place. So what we really found was uh, underneath all this was still a great technology depth of, of people in the organization, great researchers, scientists. Uh, a lot of good work was still being done, uh, just maybe not marketed, maybe not getting to the right customers, the right spaces. So we knew, and, and I very quickly got my head around the fact that we wanted to get back to being a technology creator, a disruptor uh, in our market spaces. We wanted to focus, instead of doing every, anything for a buck, to, to get back to those places we were strong, which turned out to be chemistry, biology, and advanced materials. And then as we um, looked at this, we needed some new market skills. So the first quarter in the job, uh, the leadership team and I, we actually changed out about a third of the leadership team, got some of the right skills that could help us address new markets. And then the second quarter, we really went through a restructuring. We benchmarked, baselined where we were relative to competitors and the places we wanted to be in the market, made those structural changes. Um, but like I said, I've done this for a while now. I've lived in organizations that had great cultures, and I've lived in organizations that had terrible cultures. And I think it was Peter Drucker that first said, uh, culture will eat strategy for breakfast. And I found that always to be very true. So I knew we had to address the culture of the organization as well. And when you really looked at what was happening, there was very little transparency. There was a lot of fear had run around through that downturn in the organization. A lot of fear, lack of transparency. People weren't really honest with each other, so it was hard to figure out where the problems were. People were kind of trying to protect their own skin. And, and you understand uh, why you would probably do the same thing in that situation. So we had to get back to driving accountability, uh, really understanding where we were at, and um, getting back to where we incented and drove innovation. 
to do that, we really had to go after the culture. So we talked to a number of folks and we ended up uh, talking to you and Larry with Cindelaney and um, set down that path. And that, that's what got us started down uh, what's been a very successful road for us. You know, Lou, one of the things that we've talked about uh, as we began this work with you was this idea of shadow of the leader. How have you leveraged that concept to help drive some of this change inside of Battelle? Yeah, well, Chad, that was a concept that really resonated with me. It's funny, I, I hadn't used that terminology before, but I developed kind of my own terminology in my head over the years where I would tell people, you know, listen to what I say, but watch what I do and watch what we do in the organization and know and, and seen and know just how important it is to do this kind of change, make this kind of investment in an organization. If the CEO is not the biggest cheerleader, uh, you might as well stop. You're wasting your time. And for me, I wanted to be the one who set the standard, who set a built this, I wanted people to understand that for us to be successful, we had to be the fastest, most nimble company in our industry. And to do that, we had to be honest with each other. We had to be accountable. We had to be able to share problems and not be afraid that you're gonna get killed or thrown under the bus so we can address those problems. There's an old uh, saying uh, that in the military side where I've spent a lot of my career that you always wanna be able to operate inside your competitor's decision loop. And I think that's true whether you're a boxer, a company, anything, is if you can make faster decisions and see accurately where you really are in the space, you're not kidding yourself, uh, you can adjust and adapt better. And to do that, I think the CEO's got to be front and center. So so for us, we committed to training every person in the organization. And uh, Chad, you've been involved in a number of these, but my leadership team and I actually have spent, I think, five two-day sessions now together in the first year, 14 months of this. So we've not just gone through the training together, but we're using it in every part now of how we develop our strategies, how we do those debates, how we uh, then take these things and roll them out to the rest of the organization. This is the biggest investment I've made in my three years at Patel. And we've done a number of other big things, but this is the one that I think is most important and the one that uh, I've tried to make sure uh, people see my face on it so they know that we're serious about it. One of the things I noticed when we came back from the first session and we made some commitments on how you wanted to be even more effective as leaders, I noticed when I first walked into your executive suite, it was blown up on your door and signed. I have never seen that before. What was sort of the thinking behind that? And uh, what have you sort of uh, seen others uh, react to in terms of you making that choice? Yeah, well, I think, again, well, I came from an organization where I think it was a great company and good people, but there wasn't a lot of trust and we had to build that trust. I was a new person. They didn't, most people didn't know me yet. So I wanted to be tr very transparent and I've tried to always do that in my career. I think I've learned that uh, it's harder to build a company being transparent, but it's a lot more effective. And in the end, I think much more successful. So I tried to lead, lead by being uh, as transparent as I can be. And I think it's set other people at ease. It's let them know that they can have these discussions. They can share when issues aren't working. They can actually f demand that we talk about issues that aren't working rather than just quietly going in their corner and waiting to see if that thing pops up or not. So it's 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 really helped us. And uh, I know we'll talk in a little bit, you wanna ask about COVID and what's happened since then, but I think we were really lucky uh, that we got a year, year and a half of, of this work under our belt before the uh, pandemic hit, because it's I, I think we'd have been in a very different situation if that hadn't been the case. You know, what have been some of the things that you've noticed about the organization, some of the strengths uh, that you've been able to carry through in the culture to help you pivot and adapt to this new world of COVID? I think you can run up and down the line. Uh, you know, we have accountability ladder signs all over the building. Uh, and you can see early on uh, when I went around to talk to every program in the company and review what was going on, what I mostly heard was why it wasn't successful and why it was somebody else's fault. <laughs> 
you know, our dialogue very quickly changed to what each person had to do to make it successful and what they were missing and what they needed from others. And people started working better as teams. Uh, we got more proactive. The other thing we did is in that restructuring, we actually took three layers out of the organization. Battelle, which is a, a decent-sized company, we're a little over $9 billion this year. Uh, we've almost doubled in the last three years. But um, we had more layers than Boeing does and decided that was a little bit too much bureaucracy, a little bit too slow of communication. So by taking those layers out, we forced people to communicate quicker. Uh, we got people too busy to, to play the games of trying to hide behind uh, things and, and see if somebody else would fix a problem for them. And uh, the teams responded very well. And I think it just builds a much more conducive environment to where people like to come to work. People can have much more control over their careers and they, and can, they can be successful. Vitell has a long-term incentive plan. And uh, in the 10 years before I got there, you had to, it was a three-year plan, and you had to hit half of the plan to be able to get a payout. The company hadn't done a payout in a decade. Our team's doing very well these days uh, with those payouts. So I think the, the folks are being successful. They can be proud of that, and they're also getting the rewards that go along with that as well. So there's, there's a lot of drivers that all align toward making this work. You know, Lou, when you think about sort of sharing what you're working on as a leader in the organization, there's some sense of vulnerability there. I know a lot of CEOs that will be listening to this will be thinking, well, I don't know if I want to share what I'm working on with the organization. I'm trying to be the visible leader here. You know, how do you see vulnerability and, and leveraging that to help drive change in the organization? How do you see that? I think it's very important. I, I've, I've had a pretty broad career. I've been doing this for, uh, you know, pushing 40 years and then the next year or two. And I've probably made every mistake you can make. And those are the things that have taught me along the way. So I think to help our folks learn that that's okay. And um, to make mistakes quickly and learn and adjust and adapt, that's what successful organizations do. And in fact, you know, I came in handing out books to people and <laughs> doing other things just to help them read about others uh, who have gone through the process of, of learning quickly and, and changing and not being settled on 20-year uh, research projects because that's just not the way the world works anymore today. And it's been exciting because uh, I always say it's good when you hire the A students because they can really do great work when you get everybody aligned. And I've done um, you know three turnarounds, as I mentioned. Uh, two of them, we did this kind of culture work. I did it with a different organization last time. Both were very successful, but this group at Patel, the people have just done great. Our culture surveys have improved double digits uh, each of the first two years in every category. We've put a lot of work into it, but I think our people have been open and willing and have been receptive and, and actually making it better and helping us improve. Uh, you know, I had ideas and they made them better and then told me where I was dumb and, and we continue to adjust and, and the output's just been great. It's been a real team effort uh, up and down the organization. Lou, let's talk a little bit about that output. So uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, a lot of the folks in Battelle, really uh, bright folks, and now they're starting to get aligned around that. How do you know that? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? How do you how does it feel different than when you were getting started? Yeah, so we, we set out using your terminology, blue chips. We set out five areas that we knew we wanted to improve. One of them was we wanted to become an employer of choice, and we're using the cultural surveys uh, and our diversity metrics as ways to, to drive those improvements. And again, we can see year-over-year double-digit improvements uh, in those areas as we measure those outputs. We wanted to drive innovation. We were down to where we were only applying for a couple dozen patents a year for a company like Battelle. We applied for, I think, 120 last year. And in the idea, uh, that process for us starts in what's called an IPDR. It's basically the disclosure an engineer does – 
when they have the idea, um, but you know we haven't gone through all the processing and decide if we want to invest to actually go after the patent or not. And we've taken those from the low hundreds per year to over 400 the last two years. So we've just been able to turn up the spirit of the organization and great ideas are popping out of that. And that's rolled down to our financials as well. And that we've done that for a while. The financials are always the last thing to come through, but we've seen the financials turn very rapidly, um, probably two years ahead of what I thought would have been possible just coming into the organization. If you were going to start this over again, uh, what have you learned that you would share with others that you'd want to you know, do differently or make sure you pay attention to? The good news is I think I got it mostly right this time. I, I would say um, understanding the starting position is one of the harder things when you come into a new organization uh, because of that lack of trust and transparency. Uh, what's there on the surface uh, isn't always what's really going on. And uh, I got to that. I could have probably gotten to it a little bit quicker, I think, as, uh, as I've continued to learn. And I think for me, um, I tend to have pretty loyal people that work with me. As a result, I tend to be slow to change people out sometimes. And I've had one or two leaders that I decided, um, you know, I wanted to give them a year or so because I thought they had the potential. And I was wrong in one case and had to make that change. And that cost us some time. But all in all, uh, comparing this to the, you know, the first time I did this was about 12 years ago. And it was successful. But boy, it was a lot harder grind than it's been this time. And, and I think my experience of doing it a few times has uh, helped me avoid some of those pitfalls that I fell into in past cycles. So, Lou, um, as you think about getting this mission first culture in place just before COVID happened, how have you been able to leverage that to help you pivot and uh, be successful as we get into this new COVID experience? Yeah, Chad, for me, that's been one of the um, probably nicest stories of my career to watch how our teams adapted. Um, once we gave them these tools, we had the common language to use. So we saw the finances started getting better already. So our balance sheet was stronger when COVID happened. Back in about early, I'd say mid-January, um, I forget the date, but there was a day when Singapore went from one or two cases to 100 and it was in the news. And um, I sat down with my team that day and said, okay, the same number of Chinese visitors come to the U.S. as Singapore every year. It's coming here. And of course, we know a lot more now than we did then. Some people might have thought this wouldn't have been as bad. We had no way to know. But we basically set out and I turned our team loose. I said, what can we do to help? Like I said, we're good at chemistry, biology. Uh, we play in some of the areas that are relevant toward fighting diseases. We work on vaccines. We do these things. So I challenged my team and I basically said, don't worry about money. We'll figure that out later on. Let's figure out how we're going to help the world. And the most remarkable thing happened. Our entire team went to 100-hour weeks almost immediately. And within a week, we came up with an idea based on a study we'd done a few years ago to clean masks, clean in N95 masks. Uh, we had a few people who were tied to some of the hospitals here in town, have a few people that have spouses that work at them. And it was obvious there was going to be a massive shortage of these things. The need was going to go up 10 times, and, and most of these came from China, where the, the virus was starting to rage already. We had proven a technology that could actually clean the masks, but it had never been done at scale. We were doing it in Little Leaven, where you, know, you could do five or 10 masks at a time. And now suddenly, um, the country needed hundreds of thousands or millions more of these masks. So within nine days, our team actually built a full system in 10 by 20 trailers, outfitted it, proved it in, and submitted the work for an EUA to the FDA. The FDA, within about eight or nine more days, uh, gave us an emergency uh, use approval. And uh, the government then, within about five days after that, gave us a contract. So we went 
and something that would have taken three or four years under normal cycles and under normal history and, and government rules. And within three or four weeks, we were up and running. And over the next three weeks, we built 60 of these systems, and each system was eight ISO vans. Uh, we've done over 3.7 million masks now. The, the manufacturing supply chain is, is starting to catch up. Um, so we're starting to wind the system down. We've been working with DLA and NIH. But it's it's helped fill a gap that the nation really needed at the time. And, and Battelle was able to make a difference. In parallel with that, there was a standard test that was being used for COVID. And um, we were, the world was already running out of reagents for that test even before the virus got out of China. So our team developed a very similar test using slightly different agents and slightly different equipment to get around those shortfalls. And again, within about a month, we got that test up, got it proven in. We partnered with the Ohio State Wexner Center and ripped equipment out of our laboratories and our people and put it in with their folks. And I think we've run about a third of a million COVID tests for the state now. And we're running them for our own employees now to keep our labs open. And if an employee you know, has a family member or a kid coming back from college, they can come and get tested. Now we've not only have that test, but we have a saliva test that's just accurate that still does the PCR. Our teams worked with about 10 of the vaccine companies doing vaccine development in various forms and stages. And a couple of the vaccines you're hearing in the news all the time, uh, we've had a, a great part of that in supporting uh, being able to do the, the uh, safety and efficacy. And we're probably in the middle of a dozen or so research contracts to really help the government and help the world understand what's happening in this virus, what's, what it's doing to the DNA, how these things are affecting our body. And finally, one of the funnest pieces that uh, I think we've been able to make a difference on is I actually had the president of the library here in town give me a call. And they said, well, how do we run a library? What happens? Are our books contaminated? Can you use them anymore? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> so we've uh, he actually pulled together uh, the uh, consortium of libraries and museums from around the country. And we are doing a six-phase study, of which I think we're about five phases through now, to help them understand Everything from paper books to plastic materials to CDs to museum pieces, what kind of quarantines, what kind of cleaning needs to be done so they can um, go back to work and operate effectively. I think three years ago, if, if this would have happened, we would have had some of these ideas, not all of them. I think we would have struggled to execute on any of them. I think we'd have had the idea. I think our inability to take a risk or our unwillingness for people to take risk, we probably couldn't have made the impact that the company's been able to do. And and our people from top to bottom have just stepped up. And uh, if anything, they've worked more hours in the last year than they've ever worked in their lives. And it's just been remarkable. I'm so proud of them. So, Lou, if you were going to give some advice to a leader who's starting a culture transformation, uh, what would you share with them to help them uh, drive this process through their organization? First is it's really hard. Culture is hard. You know, this sounds like everything went great for us. I mean, we had gut wrenching. Chad, you were in some of them. We had gut wrenching <laughs> tears, uh, fights. Uh, you know, lots of hard things that went through really bringing this team together and getting the human beings to to meld and come together for a common purpose. And I think you have to be willing to understand that you're going to have to go through that at some level in some form along this way. There, there's if if you don't, you're probably not really changing your culture and you're just doing the surface. And lots of companies do this and they only do the surface clean, I call it, and very few of them get the results they're hoping for. The second thing I think is um, simplicity matters. For these things to work, you have to train your whole company. 
the first time I did this, I worked with one of the, the big consulting companies and they did a great job, but it was kind of more like preparing for a Harvard business case review. The concepts were a little harder. It was tough to get it to stick in the organization. It took a lot longer because of that. And Chad, I've told you this, the greatest compliment I think I can give uh, the Hydrix and Delaney system is it's those things you learn in kindergarten and forgot. It's very elegant. People can see it. Uh, easy to remember, easy to use, and I think that's really valuable because equally important with the actions are the fact that it gives us a common language. If somebody's being a jerk in a meeting, you can walk out now and instead of calling them a jerk, you can say, what was your shadow of the leader like, right? And everybody knows, you know, the person knows what you're talking about. It puts a, a constructive um, way for us to talk about that. And then the last thing is the CEO's got to be in it. If the CEO, I mentioned before, if the CEO is not the biggest cheerleader, don't bother. Don't let one of your divisions go out and do it on their own. You're just going to waste your money. But if you're willing to do those things and put the work in, I've gotten through this three times and I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh, I think it's very, very doable and possible. Uh, it's just a matter of commitment, like most things, and you have to be willing to do the hard work. Lou, you mentioned purpose there, and uh, one of the most inspiring things that I got to experience in this process was learning about Mission First. Can you talk a little bit about Mission First and what that means to you and how that's been sort of helpful for you as you rally the troops? No, I'd be happy to, Chad. You know, uh, Battelle's a unique organization. It's the first nonprofit I've ever worked for, and we're really we are a nonprofit, but I think of it this way. We compete. We don't take donations. We compete for every penny that we get. We compete against for-profit companies. But then instead of paying dividends, instead of paying shareholders, we give that money away. And we have a mission defined around that that focuses primarily around STEM education uh, to help teach the next generation, particularly uh, in communities of economic disadvantage. And the company is on a path to try to get to a million kids a year and um, really make a big difference. And I think because of that mission, well, while everybody needs to be paid fairly, money's not the most important thing here. Uh, I took a pay cut to come here. Uh, I'm still treated very well, but uh, I gave up the stock options and the percent ownership of the company for my past deals and all that, and so did many others that came here. So it's really important for us to rally around that mission. And so we chose to actually brand this program Mission First at Patel, and it really aligns on everything we do is creating resources to execute that mission. And that mission impacts lives in our communities and around the country and around the world. And it's something that our, our team constantly rallies around. It, it gives everyone a sense of good, a sense of, of fulfillment. So whether you're you know, the inventor who's gonna get 20 patents this year with the breakthrough that's gonna cure cancer, or whether you're the person who's making the accounting system work uh, 5% more effectively, you, we can all align around the value that's gonna to bring to execute these mission and to train kids. I myself am first generation college out of my family. Uh, that degree changed my life uh, in ways that I could have never imagined at the time. And we wanna give that opportunity to a lot more kids and, and our whole company rallies around that. So it's, it's, it puts that sense of purpose at everything that we do. Uh, Lou, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and to share this advice with other leaders who will be approaching the same sorts of issues. Chad, really my pleasure. And it's been a pleasure working with you and the whole uh, Hydric team and want to continue doing it for years to come. Thanks for listening to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.